1: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, John Banville, on his recent novels April in Spain and Snow. John Banville is the author of 18 novels, including The Book of Evidence, The Sea, which won the 2005 Man Booker Prize, the Quirk series of crime novels under the pen name Benjamin Black, and most recently, the best-selling Snow, his first novel to feature Detective Inspector St. John Strafford, which is just recently out in paperback and we'll be talking about a little bit later on as well. Other major prizes he has won include the Franz Kafka Prize, the Irish Pen Award for Outstanding Achievement in Irish Literature, and the Prince of Astorias Awards. John's latest novel is April in Spain. John, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I'm sorry, I know you've probably answered this many times before in your board, but we have to talk first of all about Benjamin Black and how your previous series of books about the pathologist Quirk were written under the pen name Benjamin Black, but both Snow, which Quirk makes a tiny named appearance in, and April in Spain, which is a Quirk novel, are both written under your own names. So let's talk about why.
2: Well, it's very simple, and I'll be as brief as I can. I started up Pen name because I, this was back in 2004, 2005, I didn't want my readers to think that I was indulging in some kind of postmodernist literary joke, that this was, these are real crime novels. I had just started reading George Simidon, and I was, I was bowled over by how wonderful his books are. And I thought I'd try to do something the same. I had a television script that wasn't going to get made, so I turned it into a novel, the first crime novel, Christine Falls. And then I thought that would be a one-off. I thought that would be a coup d'esprit. Know, and, um, but then I decided I'd write another one, and then another one, and then another one. And I'm sort of hooked. I don't much like Quirk. I find him a bit of a bore, but I like the people around him. And uh, when I came to write the one that's just come out, April in Spain, uh, I had to do some research in previous books. And since I can't bear to read my own work it makes me physically sick, I decided to hit on the idea of listening to them in uh, audio books. And Timothy Dalton had uh, read a few of the early ones, read them beautifully. And I, since I'm an insomniac, I listen to them late at night in the dark and this voice speaking to me. So I was able to achieve a certain amount of objectivity. And I thought, you know, these books are not too bad at all. Why am I, why have I got this pseudonym? So I killed off Benjamin. But the last thing to say about it is <laughs> Benjamin still lives in the Spanish-speaking countries. A Spanish friend of mine said, oh, yeah, you sent him down here like retired English stockbrokers or international criminals to live in Spain, right? So Benjamin lives on in Spain.
1: So Quirk, then, I mean, it seems a a, a daft question to ask, considering, as you said, this is the protagonist of a, you know, a long series of books, indeed, once upon a time, a a TV series as well. Um, But for anybody that might not have read one of those previous novels, tell us something about who Quirk is.
2: He's a pathologist. Uh, He's a state pathologist, I think. Last heard of, I think he was state pathologist in Ireland. Uh, his background is shrouded because he spent his early years in an orphanage. He didn't know for a long time who his parents were. He's still not absolutely sure, although he has strong, dark suspicions as to who they were. He's deeply troubled. He has a bit of a drink problem. Uh, people in other countries consider him to be an alcoholic. In Ireland, he'd just be regarded as a heavy drinker, fond in the bottle. Uh, but he has a drink problem. He has psychological problems. And he feels very sorry for himself a lot of the time. He's a daughter called Phoebe. Phoebe I find much more sympathetic. My agent once said to me, Oh, I think you're in love with Phoebe. And I said, No. Without thinking, I said, No, in fact, I am Phoebe. Phoebe is me. I don't I don't know how that's possible, but she is.
1: Let's talk about where we find Quirk at the beginning of April in Spain, because he's in a he's in a very weird place, which is potentially, if he can manage it, happy. Yes,
2: quirk and happiness, not not two words that go together easily. Uh, But yes, he's married. Uh, He's married to a psychiatrist, an Austrian psychiatrist of that, um, which is probably good for him. Uh, He is is sort of happy, but he hasn't got the gift for happiness, as many Irish people have not. Um, He's doing his best, and he goes on, I had been to San Sebastian a few years previously and I'd just fallen in love with the, that city, a very small city, northern Spain. So I decided I would send him and his wife him and his wife, on a holiday there. So they go down to San Sebastian, but then all kinds of dark things start to happen.
1: And so just tell us something more about Quirk's relationship with Evelyn, his wife, and, and what she has... what she is attempting to do for him, I guess.
2: Well, Evelyn, and his wife brings humor and lightness into Quirk's life. She is a psychiatrist, but she's a very level-headed and down-to-earth psychiatrist. She has a dark past of her own. She's Jewish. Our people perished during the war. We're, we're in the 1950s in, in this book. We are in all the, the Quirk books. Um so she has her she has her demons as well, but she copes with them better than Quirk does. And uh, they, they sort of rub along quite well. Uh, he loves her very much. She loves him. She finds him amusing. He finds his self-pity and his self-aggrandizement <laughs> quite funny. Um, so they're kind of like ideally matched.
1: So the April of the title, April in Spain, is turns out to be a character from one of the earlier Benjamin Black novels, Elegy for April. Um, and she's unexpectedly in Spain and, and is spotted by Quirk. Remind us why she's there.
2: Well, my ambition from the start, when I began writing these crime novels, was to write a crime novel without a crime in it. And in Elegy for April, April Latimer is supposedly the victim. She's murdered, but her corpse is not found. So I have resurrected her in April in Spain, which means that retrospectively I've written a crime novel without a crime in it. I'm very, very pleased with that. She's, uh, she's a tough young woman. She's uh, she's not particularly nice. She's a victim, but victims are not always not always nice. I quite like her. She's she's sort of awful in the way that I I like people to be slightly awful and to be tough, and she's that. She's there because she thinks that she's been banished from Ireland at her you know, peril of her life. This is not the case. And we discover I mean, look, I don't want to give too much of the book away, you know. <laughs> uh, you know, it is, a, I mean, I never think of these as thrillers, I think of them as mystery novels. Uh, and there is a mystery as to why April is in Spain and what happened and what will happen
1: and then i wanted to talk about the the sort of central antagonist of the book who is a character called terry Tice, um a sort of well he originally from ireland and in fact you know originally we'll talk about the um the industrial school later on but there's a link there as well with terry um but he's he's basically a now latterly a sort of london gangster tell us something about terry and about creating this character, because he's, he's a great character.
2: Oh, Terry Tice is my favourite character in the book. He's absolutely awful. I mean, he's deeply, deeply wicked. Deeply wounded, deeply injured, deeply damaged, but, or I should say, and consequently, very, very dangerous indeed. He's sort of derived from Pinky, the central character in Graham Greene's Brighton Rock. So, it's a sort of a, an in-joke. I have him buying a copy of Brighton Rock when he's in Dublin. Reading about Pinky, uh, he's a, uh, yeah, he's a very marvellous young man, and uh, we know he's going to cause mayhem, and he does. But I like him. He's uh... a. <laughs> Lots of people have said to me um, that they would like to meet him again, and who knows? Uh, you know, maybe we will.
1: Before we go into into the second half, where I'd I'd like to introduce uh, Sinjin St. Strafford and talk a little bit about Snow as well as this book. I was struck by the fact that, you know, this April Latimer, the Latimers, were a a family of men who had, you know, once been, you know, involved in the Easter Rising, involved in, you know, in the Civil War. They'd latterly become, you know, supposedly respectable characters in Irish society. In Snow, there was... A family, the JJ Lawless and Father Tom Lawless, who was the uh, the person that is murdered at the beginning of the book. And I wondered if it was just a coincidence that, that April chooses the uh, the pseudonym Lawless while she's in Spain.
2: Oh goodness, I can't remember. Probably not. Probably not. Uh, she's... I, I I love the name Lawless. I think it's wonderful. Um, you know, choosing names is very important in in writing fiction. Once you've got the names right, you're halfway there. And I can always tell about a bad novel when I read the first 10 or 15 pages and I realise the names are all wrong. is means that the writer hasn't settled into it. So April Latimer called Lawless in Spain. I like that. The Lawlesses were a dreadful gang. But then some of the Latimers. You know, we had we had lots of truly terrible people in Ireland over the years who operated under the protection of the Catholic Church, operated with the, the connivance of the Catholic Church, made themselves rich, uh, abused their positions of power and wealth and privilege. Um, so I'm kind of if I have any social program in these books that I really haven't, I can't claim to have. but I am settling a few scores with with the island of those days, the island that I grew up in, which is a horrendous place, truly horrendous place.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask you um, over the course of the entire, you know, series of books about Quirk, and then these new ones, why the nineteen fifties, Ireland. But this is why, isn't it? I mean, you 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 you've just answered that, really. That's oh, well, uh, no, look, I mean, no, a, a much
2: cheaper reason to have the nineteen fifties. The nineteen fifties is absolutely ideal if you're writing noir fiction. Ireland in those days, you know, we were a, a completely brainwashed society. Where I went to Eastern Europe in the 70s and early 80s before the Berlin Wall came down. I, I said, My God, this is Ireland. They had the communists to rule their lives from the cradle of the grave. And we, the Catholic Church, exactly the same thing, you know, with the promise of heaven tomorrow. Um, so it was a it was a dark, a dark place. And you know, so many people suffered so much. Children. Young women, you know, I mean, the worst thing that could happen to a young woman in the Ireland of the 1950s was to become pregnant outside marriage. The father was never, he never suffered anything. He just disappeared. But the young women, oh my God, this was the greatest disgrace that could befall a family. And thousands of them, tens of thousands of them were sent to slave camps, maglan laundries, industrial schools, You know we have a shameful, shameful past. And when one of the first reports on child abuse in Ireland came out in 2003, the New York Times asked me to write an op-ed piece. And I did, and I began by saying everybody knew. And this didn't do me any favors with the establishment here in Ireland, but it's true, everybody did know. But a people, a nation, has an extraordinary capacity to know and not know at the same time. And is not exclusively an Irish gift. One only has to look at the 20th century, the ways in which Germany and the Jews, Turkey and the Armenians, Rwanda, Bosnia, you know, people can know and not know at the same time. We have wonderful capacity to lie to ourselves. So we knew and we didn't know. But there were, you know, some 50,000 children were incarcerated in Ireland uh, in the 1940s and 1950s and many of them didn't survive. Many of them, damage is still there. I, I take no pleasure in saying these things. I love this country. I am, as my friend John Le used to make the distinction. He said, I'm a patriot, but I'm not a nationalist. And I'm certainly not a nationalist, but I'm a patriot, I love this country. But, you know, to love a country, you have to acknowledge its sins as well as its wonderful gifts.
1: you listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to John Banville and we're talking about his latest novel, April in Spain. And John, I'd also like us to talk about the previous novel, Snow, a little bit now, which is just out in paperback. So it's relevant to do so. Also because this is the book that introduces um, Detective Inspector St. John Strafford, or Stafford as, as everybody, literally everybody calls him. Tell us something first of all, about who he is and specifically something about his background.
2: Well, St John Stratford is as you can tell from the name, is not uh, an Irish Catholic. He is a son of the Ascendancy, the 5% of Protestant people in the Republic of Ireland. Um, he's an impossibility, is the reason that I like him. You could not have had a son of the Ascendancy as a detective in the Irish police force in the 1950s. Um, so I, I, I like that I'm writing about impossibility. He is a kind of foil to Quirk. He has a melancholy streak, just as Quirk has, but he's less doom-laden than Quirk. hes I just like him because he's so unassuming. Uh, you know, he's able to commit acts of violence when it's required. He's capable of being tough. He is uh, disaffected Slightly, how would I say, he's slightly not there. And I like him for that reason. Um, But as I say, when he's required to take action, he does take action. And I think in one of these books, I'm going to put him and Quirk's daughter Phoebe into each other's range and see what happens there. This is one of the the few pleasures of writing novels. You know, you play with your characters as if they were marionettes, uh, so I might put Stratford and Phoebe together. They would suit each other very well.
1: So you said, you know, the a tiny percentage member of, of the ascendancy, there are a family, so in Snow, the, the, the novel is set, around the house of of the Osborne family, and there are other families, other notable families, as Stratford's father sarcastically says at one point, that are sort of dotted around Ireland in these sort of rotting, run-down mansions. So at this time in the 1950s, and I guess, you know, when you were growing up, who were these people? What were the sort of remnants of that sort of, like, previous order?
2: Oh, yes, I mean, I grew up as a a oh, middle class I in a small town in Ireland. And uh, once a year, when I we went on our holidays the seaside, I would go to the the fete, the garden fete, which was held by the Protestants. And they would all come out in their three-piece tweed suits and their flowered frocks and their, their wonderful sort of knee-length cardigans. And I envied them so much. They were so at home in the world. Uh, their accents were wonderful. I just thought they were absolutely wonderful. I wanted to be one of them with absolutely no hope of being one of them. So, I mean, you see, when the Irish state was founded, when the Republic was founded and partition came in, the Protestants in the 26 counties of the Republic, they essentially gave up. They said, they just closed the gates to their big houses and their domains and they retired and said, all right, you you people run it. And that left Ireland to the shopkeepers and the priests and the the power mongers um, this was a great disaster for us, because they had a great deal of class. And I use the word unashamedly, a great deal of class, a great deal of elegance, a great deal of learning. And they were also, I mean, they were, they were scholars of the Irish language, they were great historians. Almost all the rebellions against British rule in Ireland were led by Protestants. This is a, a fact that sort of glossed over in our education, in fact, in those days. So they're a fascinating tiny group of people. I have nothing but admiration for them, but I wish they had tried to hold on to some kind of power in the new state that was created in 1922. It's complicated.
1: <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, I just wanted to talk about how these novels come together in terms of, you know, you're uh, writing a crime novel, a novel with a, you know, a, a firm plot a mystery at its centre, and, and how you approach these differently to how you would ap- have approached one of what would be called, in inverted as one of your literary novels?
2: Yeah, you know, well, I just finished one of those uh, in August. I've been working on it for five or six years. It's a very difficult book, very difficult to write and probably very difficult to read. I hope not. Um, but it's completely different to the crime books I write. Those novels very very slowly, uh, and the crime books I write very very quickly. Real crime writers get really angry at me when I say this, but you know, Joe seminar you used to write his books in ten days. Um, so I don't know what they're complaining about. I think the thing about writing quickly is to write spontaneously. And these crime books that I write, they need spontaneity. They can't be brooded over. They can't have exquisite sentences, you know, falling down each page. They they have to be done swiftly and done with a certain panache. Um, so that's what I do. And I, because I hate summer, I mean, I find it the most boring season of all, I kill the summers by writing a crime novel over, over the summer, about May to, to September. And it's uh, and it's not easy. I mean, look, writing is never easy. You know, anybody who's written a letter to a bank manager or to a lover knows it's not easy and language is very deceptive and it's a very slippery medium. Uh, so it's never easy. But the crime novels, I in the crime novels I get to be interested in plot, in character, in dialogue, in action. The other Danville who writes the other books is not interested in any of these things. I'm not sure what he is interested in, but not not in those things. So I'm very lucky I can I can write on two in two separate spheres.
1: You mentioned Seminon, but who else? What other crime writers in particular might have been an influence on your crime writing?
2: Oh yeah, I mean, I, I hate the whole notion of genre. For me, there's only good writing, and writing that's not very good. Some of the finest fiction of the 20th century is written in the, the so-called genre of crime fiction. James M. Cain's The Postman Always Rings Twice, which I think was written in A Long Weekend. is a masterpiece, a masterpiece of bleak uh, existentialist uh, writing. Simonon, uh, the Maigret books are a bit loose, but what he called his hard novels, Novels like Dirty Snow and Missy Morn Vanishes, uh, The Strangers in the House, these are masterpieces of 20th-century literature, much better than anything by Camus or, or Sartre, I think. So, you know, a lot of good fiction has, has been written in, in, as I said, the so-called genre of crime fiction. Uh, you know, and uh, Raymond Chandler always said, you know, I, I don't happen to care who killed Professor Plum with the lead pipe in the library. In other words, he was saying, it's not action. It's not crime that counts. It's human behavior. And Raymond Chandler started writing for the Pulp Fiction magazines. And they were always saying to him, look, look, people don't care about all this fancy stuff in between. What we want is the action. And he would say to them, no, you're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. And they were wrong. I mean, Chandler became a household name because he wrote these stylish books. I mean, this is a great discovery of mine when my my older brother gave me standardist fiction to read when I was in my teens. I discovered that crime fiction could be written with a highly finished prose style. This is a great revelation. And then I discovered something like Richard Stark uh, in the Parker novels. I mean, I, I Quirk hasn't got a, a first name, which is kind of a little homage to, to Richard Stark. His his Parker character hasn't got a... I remember talking to Richard Stark with name Donald Westlake, and he, he said, he always regretted that he gave him the name Parker because he said, you know, I keep getting in trouble. You know, Parker parked the car and Parker walked across the park. And these are the difficulties we deal dealing with. But, uh, but he's a great writer as well. And he's not, I don't think he's well known on this side of the Atlantic. But a Very great, very great uh, crime writer. Very great novelist.
1: To finish it off, can I get you to, to read us a bit of April in Spain?
2: So this is Quirk and he's staying in this very fancy hotel in San Sebastian. How was it, he wondered, not for the first time, that people seemed oblivious to the brazen confidence trick that was played on them in hotels? Did it never occur to them to think how many greasy holidaymakers, leaky honeymooners, how many oldsters with unpredictable bladders and flaking skin had slept already in the very bed in which they were themselves just now reclining? Did it never cross their minds that over the years, God knows how many poor souls had breathed their last? In the same mattress in which they stretched themselves out so luxuriously at the end of another fun filled day spent prone on the beach or gambling in the sea as blue as wreckage die And why, he called out whiningly, Evelyn having taken herself off to the bathroom, why must there be so many staff? They were everywhere porters, receptionists, waiters, barmen, chambermaids, bellboys, cleaners, and those unaccountable bossy looking middle aged women in white blouses and black skirts who stride along the upstairs corridors, burying in their chubby hands those mysterious but important-looking clipboards. Evelyn came back into the bedroom. "'Why did you bring this woolen jumper?' she asked, holding up the heavy brown gown by its sleeves. "'We're in Spain, not Scandinavia. She paused, looking vaguely. "'What are you saying, dear, about hotels?'
1: So I've been talking to John Banville. We've been talking about his books April in Spain, which is out now in hardback, and Snow, which is out now in paperback, both from Faber and Faber. John, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Very good to talk to you. I enjoyed it. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Neil Mason, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up, and hosted by ACAST. Please do subscribe and tell your friends. Thanks for listening.
0: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.